good evening, everyone. Good evening. My name is Ernesto Maldonado. I'm on the board of directors of Rothko Chapel. And on behalf of the executive director, David Leslie, who was unable to be here tonight with us, and the entire board and staff, I'd like to welcome you all this evening to this space and to thank you for being here and being willing to engage in this very timely and very important conversation. For those of you visiting for the first time, the Rothko Chapel was founded by Dominique and Jean de Menil and is the complete work of art by artist Mark Rothko. It was dedicated in 1971 to provide a place of reflection, meditation, and prayer for people of all faiths and none and no faith for every day of the year. Since its opening, the chapel and its programs have served as a focus point for people to gather, to explore spiritual bonds common to all, to discuss human problems of worldwide interest, which tonight's topic certainly is, and to share spiritual experiences. Throughout its history, the Rothko Chapel has served as a rallying place for those concerned with peace, freedom, and social justice throughout the globe. Tonight, we are honored to partner with the Houston Immigration Legal Services Collaborative and for this program and to have with us an incredible lineup of knowledge and passionate speakers, and I can really attest that that is true for the 15 or 20 minutes I've spent with these women. <laughs> they know what they're talking about. They're very passionate about it. You will learn a lot tonight about the issues around immigration and, and detention. These women are all working on the front lines of immigration and family separation here in Houston. We'll begin with a few words from Kate Vickering, Executive Director of, Human, of Houston, sorry, Houston Immigration Legal Services to provide a context for the conversation. And then we'll move to a time of reflection and prayer led by Father Alejandro Montes. He's coming to us from Peru, but he's also spent many years here in Houston at um, San Mateo uh, Iglesia. And then that will be followed by a moderated discussion with the panel. While this is an issue that can be very passionate, we do ask that everyone respect different opinions on the issue. We do want to learn from one another tonight. You'll see in your printed program full biographies of each one of our presenters tonight. And at the end, there will be a time for questions and answers. And then you're all invited to join us, as we always do, on the plaza for a reception and for continued conversation that we can't have in the time frame we'll be in the room today. Tonight's program is being recorded and will be available on the website. We ask that you please refrain from photography and silence your cell phone. So if anyone has a cell phone still on, please uh, put it on silence. And with that, um, please join me welcoming Kate and our panelists tonight. Hi. Good evening. Uh, thank you all so much for being here. I'm Kate Vickery. I'm the executive director of the Houston Immigration Legal Services Collaborative. It's a mouthful, I know. Uh, we're a consortium of organizations that serve low-income immigrants in the greater Houston region, primarily legal services, but also advocacy and organizing. 
And we're really honored to be part of this event with the Rothko Chapel, which is such an important hub for respectful and informed dialogue in Houston. And that's what I hope tonight is for everyone. My role here is to give a little bit of context setting and then to turn you over to the real experts who will be sitting uh, up here um, on the issue of family separation and the current crisis where we find ourselves. So in April, the Trump administration's Department of Justice implemented a zero tolerance policy which required the immediate criminal prosecution of anyone caught crossing the US border at a port of entry. Though we now know that there have been examples of families separated at ports of entry, which are supposed to be the correct way to seek asylum in the United States. This policy created the conditions for family separation, which we've all seen in the news, because children cannot be kept in federal criminal detention facilities. Parents were transferred from Customs and Border Patrol to the U.S. Marshals, and then they were tried for the misdemeanor of illegal entry or the felony of illegal re-entry. Children were turned over to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, two different uh, departments within the government handling two different sides of this issue. Parents and children were flung all over the country with no information about how to reach each other. And many children are pre-verbal, very young, and without any identification indicating who their, uh, where their parents might be. Over the three months that the policy was being implemented, somewhere between two and 3,000 families were separated. No one knows exactly the number. Faced with massive public and legal pushback, the president issued an executive order on June 20th, which officially ended the family separation policy, but not the zero tolerance policy, and it's important to hold that in your head. The order calls for families to be detained together in family detention centers, and you'll hear more about that this evening. On June 24th, a second sort of stop to the policy came out of a federal judge in California who issued a ruling that requires federal officials to stop detaining parents apart from their children, absent a determination that the parent is unfit, which is a major loophole, to reunify parents with children under the age of five within 14 days. This deadline was last week, July 11th. Fewer than 50% of those children have been reunified, to the best of our knowledge. It also called for the, for the reunification of parents with children over the age of five within 30 days. That deadline is next week, July 26th, and we have no reason to believe that they will do any better than that 50% metric. It also called for the government to stop deporting parents without a child. However, we already know that many, many, many parents have already been deported back to home country without their child. And there are children in shelters here in the United States while their parents are back in home country. I want to share one specific quote from this judge's argument, which I think is uh, a uh, perfect summary of some of the absurdity of what we're talking about tonight. The judge said, the government readily keeps track of personal property of detainees in criminal and immigration proceedings. Money, important documents, automobiles, to name a few, are routinely cataloged, stored, tracked, and produced upon a detainee's release at all levels, state and federal, citizen and alien. Yet the government has no system in place for, to keep track of, provide effective communication with, and to promptly produce alien children. The unfortunate reality is that under the present system, migrant children are not accounted for with the same efficiency and accuracy as property. And that cannot satisfy the requirements of due process. Yesterday, a federal judge uh, temporarily blocked, went further and, and blocked the government for seven days from deporting families who have been reunified or who are still separated. Parents have been increasingly taking what's called voluntary departure because they've been told that it's the only way to be reunified with their children. 
They forego their due process rights and their ability to seek asylum if they do this. And this is precisely what the administration has hoped to achieve with this policy, deterring people from utilizing their legal right to seek asylum in the United States by kidnapping and holding their children hostage. That's what we're talking about. This is an incredibly emotional issue, sorry. I am the mother of a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And it took me weeks, and I have failed tonight, to even talk about it in a professional setting without crying. We should allow ourselves to feel emotional about what our government is doing to individuals seeking refuge in the United States, regardless of the reason that they're coming. The vast majority of families who embark on the incredibly dangerous journey to seek asylum at the southern border are refugees. Refugees must meet the same legal definition as asylum seekers. The only difference is where they are when they make their claim. Refugees get designated as refugees in the country that they're leaving, while asylum seekers must seek that status in the country where they're going. Hold that in your mind as we have this conversation tonight. We also need to remain really clear-eyed and analytical about the fact that the policy of family separation is part of an intentional, long game designed by savvy anti-immigration hawks to break down the avenues for legal immigration into the United States. This effort began with a Muslim ban, a dramatic reduction in the number of refugees that the US would welcome in 2017, has continued with the ending of the DACA program and temporary protected status for six countries and counting, it has, uh, we've seen reductions in the federal funding that support legal representation for immigrants and a steady narrowing of the legal pathways for individuals to win an asylum claim. On top of this lies an executive order from early 2017 that unequivocally states that anyone living without documentation in the United States, which includes half a million Houston area residents, are a priority for deportation. Deportation is family separation as well. I stood in a stiflingly hot recreation space at an ICE detention facility in Conroe three weeks ago in the company of 10 women. When we asked who had been separated from their children when crossing the border, three women slowly raised their hands and almost immediately dissolved into tears. I lost my composure as well while listening to them hastily describe their situations in the few minutes that ICE had given us to talk with them before we were hurried out of the room. The folks who are here tonight are bringing the stories of these families to you, while the families themselves continue to languish in detention centers all over the country. I thank you for being here to listen and engage, and I'm gonna turn it over now to Padre Alejandro. Thank you for the invitation to share my life story as an immigrant in this country. God has been very merciful to bring me to this beautiful country. When I was in Guatemala, I was, I'm from Peru, I received an invitation from uh, Harlingen, Texas, to work there as a priest. From the first day in my arrival, felt that uh, how difficult it was to be an immigrant, even with documents. And I imagined that it was terrible 
for undocumented people to live in this country because of their language and the discrimination. While I was here in Harlingen, I, in McAllen too, we helped hundreds of immigrants, providing shelter, food, and also visiting the detention center in Los Fresnos, Texas. We moved uh, 85 to Houston. During 86, 90, 89, we had an officer in our church to help those who qualify for amnesty. From 85 in Houston to now, I have continued to help in different ways, looking for lawyers, visiting the immigrants, visiting the immigrant detention center, Houston, Conroe, taking money and clothes for those who have been deported. Currently, I have visited those who have been separated from their families. It's hard. There are laws, but love is greater than all the laws. Now I want to ask you, all of you, to say hello to the person who's uh, close to you or next to you and ask how they feel about this subject, please. Thank you. <coughs> Let us pray. <coughs> o God of love, grace and mercy and justice, we stand before you to thank you for your goodness eternal love and your faithfulness. We also know that everything happened in the world has a purpose and a reason. It is to remind us of your commandment to love you above all things in our neighbors as ourselves. Today we ask your 
to rekindle that love for our neighbors, immigrants, to love them and deed in a truth and not only with words. Your people, Israel, were immigrants. The church is an immigrant. And it is founder, our Lord Jesus Christ, is an immigrant. You took care of them, defend them, and bless them. That's our prayer today for the immigrants, that you take care of them, protect them, and reunite them as a family, and give them what they are asking and waiting for. We ask you to hear them and to hear us too. In your name we pray. Amen. Good evening. My name is Sonobia Lai. I am the legal director of St. Francis Carini Center for Immigrant Legal Assistance of Catholic Charities in Houston. Um, I'm very delighted to be here to moderate this very um, timely discussion and conversation and hope to share some information with you all and engage in a conversation about not just the future about these children that are being separated, but the future of our country as a nation of immigrants and what are the big picture issues that the current crisis actually lead to. So Cabrini Center has been involved in providing legal services and direct representation to unaccompanied children for more than 10 years and uh, direct representation in the last four years, I believe. Um, so we um, provide legal services to children that are detained in eight facilities in Greater Houston um, with about uh, 1,200 beds. So every day we are watching 1,200 community children in this shelter, um, whether some of them will be released and reunified with their family. And for those who are not, we provide legal representation to help them seek immigration relief. At the same time, we also have another 1,200, 1,300 active cases of released unaccompanied children whom we are representing to seek immigration relief. So the current issue that hit the news in the last six weeks um, is sort of a microscopic view of the immigration world involving unaccompanied children. As we think about this close to 3,000 children being separated from their parents, we should also remember around the country we have about 12,000 unaccompanied children who came here seeking refuge from violence that the United States have played a role in creating and forcing them to flee their country, as well as domestic violence, child abuse, and just very oppressive environments. So as we talk about the current issue 
keep that in mind and, and think about how that is reflective of changes in our immigration system. How, you know, um, we may call it a philosophy or a principle of how our country is becoming. Um, so without further ado, I want to introduce our first panelist, um, Dalia Casio-Granados, who is the director of the American Bar Association Children Immigration Law Academy, who can share with us her experience working with unaccompanied children and give us some perspective. Thank you, Zenobia. Um, I started working with unaccompanied children um, in 2006 when I was in law school. Anne was actually my clinic professor then, and she uh, took a group of students to Corpus Christi to visit a shelter. Um, our job was to provide a Know Your Rights presentation to these kids um, who had entered the country without a parent or a legal guardian and had ended up in these shelters run by the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Um, I was a law student myself. I was trying to wrap my mind around immigration law, um, and my task was to sort of teach immigration law to these kids, which I found ridiculous. Um, these kids uh, were often um, on their own when they went to immigration court um, because part of the process is that um, these kids are in removal proceedings, which means that the government is actively trying to deport them. And if they don't find an attorney, um, then they would have to represent themselves. Um, so since then, I decided that um, I would dedicate my career to this population. Um, and I did. My uh, very first job um, out of law school was as a fellow to represent released and accompanied children. Um, so those same children that I feared would have to go to court by themselves, um, I hoped to be their advocate and sit next to them in immigration court. Um, there's been many changes since that time. Um, we've seen worsening country conditions, um, for countries in Central America, Honduras, Guatemala, um, El Salvador. Um, and so an increase in the number of refugees coming to the U.S. to, the US, uh, to seek protection from, from that part of the world. Um, so with the, the increase um, in population, there's also been other changes um, within that time. There's also been increase in protections um, the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act in 2008 expanded relief for these children. Um, there's also been several lawsuits um, to do with this for a settlement agreement um, that have expanded relief for these children. Um, after the surge in 2014 of kids and families coming to the U.S. seeking protection, there was also an increase in legal services. Um, so there was more attorneys that were able to help these kids. Um, lots, a lot of the nonprofit legal services around the country um, received funding to, to help in the representation of these children. And so now we see a lot more advocates and attorneys um, in the field. Um, unfortunately, uh, now, now we're seeing um, the administration sort of taking away some of those protections that have been hard fought by advocates for unaccompanied children. Um, so we've seen, um, you know, the, the administration talk about the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act or the Flores Settlement Agreement as loopholes. 
um, instead of protections for unaccompanied children. Um, we've also seen the administration cut funding for the legal representation of unaccompanied children. Um, and so really it's time for us to, um, to step up and try to protect these kids. Um, I wanted to share with you a quick story of uh, one client um, uh, that it was a very a difficult case um, and he stays um, in my mind. Um, he suffered um, sexual abuse by a family member in his home country of Honduras um, and then suffered some very horrific domestic violence by his father, who is also a gang member. Um, his father would force him to um, sell drugs to people in the neighborhood, um, and if he didn't do it when he you know, didn't want to do it, didn't want to participate in these activities, um, he would be um, beaten very badly by his father. Um, after about a year and a half, he was able to escape, and with the help of his grandmother, um, made his way to the U.S. Um, I was um, his attorney in his immigration case, um, and we went to the asylum office to ask for asylum. Um, we had a terrible interview. Um, we had a, an officer, an asylum officer, who lost his patience with my client because he couldn't tell his story in a linear fashion, my traumatized 14-year-old client. Um, but he was granted asylum. Um, and so able to stay in the U.S. with his family. Um, now, with the, um, and Anna's going to talk about this a little bit more, but um, the, our Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, has just issued a decision, matter of AB, that strips some of these protections for domestic violence victims like my client. Um, so if we had gone to the asylum office today, um, very likely my client would not have received the protection that he did receive. Um, so it is definitely time for us to step up and um, ask for these protections that have been in place, that advocates have fought for, um, to get them back. So um, the Cabrini Center, we serve the children's side of this family unit. So um, I believe it was the first week of June is when this separated family issue started to hit the news. One of my paralegal, very experienced paralegal, come back send me an email to say that I'm trying to keep my composure here. Um, that this is, this today has been a really difficult day because there were a dozen children from the age of five to 10 just crying through the whole process when she was trying to teach the kids what, they, what rights they have. It was impossible. They were crying for their mommies and daddies and was nothing could be communicated. So since then, every week we have new separated children in the shelter. And we are trying to do some investigative work to figure out where the parents are and make contact with the parents once we can locate them uh, in ICE detention facilities all over the country. We have parents in Washington. We have parents in California, Colorado, Louisiana. Um, Georgia, Miami, and scattered around Texas. I know Ann Chandler, who is the executive director of Tari Justice Center, has been visiting these um, facilities in the border and meeting with some of the parents. Maybe Ann can share some of the information with us here. 
Thanks, Zenobia. Um, you know, I think on the face, when I think about family separation, there's this kind of, you know, revulsion that you kind of feel as, a, as just being a human being. And when you get up close and see, well, how is this actually playing out? I can tell you, I think it's way uglier than one can even imagine in their living room or when you kiss your grandkid or your kid goodnight. Um, had the opportunity, because I think as Kate explained, you know, this was based on a, a, a policy that is still in effect of that somehow there's a crisis at the border. There's no real crisis at the border. This is a manufactured crisis. In the year 2000, there were roughly 1 million, 1.6 million apprehensions of people coming over without visas. In the last five years, we have not hit 500,000 our country can absorb and give real process to this population fleeing incredible violence. But in this manufactured crisis, we have this idea that we should be extending criminal laws when a family uses the process that is laid out in international law and statute of how to ask for asylum. And that process involves arriving and within one year, saying, I need help, the United States. But instead, we are putting them in courts and we ripped their children away. Um, and so when I was in that federal court watching what does this prosecution look like, if you could close your eyes, there's literally each docket and chair is crammed full of immigrants. It was on a Monday, so these individuals had been apprehended on a Wednesday or Thursday, and each parent had a separate story of the way the immigration officer took their child. Some stories was, they said my child needed a bathe, which was true. And 30 minutes later, 40 minutes later, I said, where's my child? And then finally they said I wouldn't be seeing my child again. That my child needed to go for an appointment and then I wouldn't see my child. I woke up the next morning and looked for my child and my child was gone. And so as we're in these courtrooms, first of all, not a single parent had given clean clothes. They were in shackles and they hadn't even been given the dignity of a bath or a shower. They had blood still on your clothes and the parents would ask things, when my kid goes to court, is he too gonna be in a shackle? Others were trying to deliver medical information to me with the hope that I could find their child and provide a caretaker information about their epileptic child and what medication they're on. It was a horror show. When you go to the adult detention centers in Houston, and we have roughly 3,000 adults in any given day in our local shelter, we visited the parents and said, you know, have you been able to speak to your child? No. Well, did you get the phone number that immigration gave you? Yes, this is a one-hater number. It doesn't work from the detention center. And I, with volunteers, no problem. They've given us a new number. You just have to hit 699 pound. And you need to ask for, to speak to a lawyer. And you need to write your deportation officer. Now let's go over this checklist. We return 10 days later. One out of the nine individuals with our instructions were able to reach their child. This is intentionally crafted to cause pain. 
and deterrence. I don't even think we should give it the dignity of talking about a policy because a policy has processes, it has a realistic goal, there are procedures in place, there's a forethought and some structure. This is just chaos. And I think as Kate explained, we care more about property than we do about these children. And it is a real moment for us to pause and to say, why as humanity are we feeling threatened and why are we allowing our government to dehumanize this population, to call them animals, to break down the commonality that we shall be feeling right now with some of the most humble individuals seeking safety at our border. And so I think when Dalio mentioned, you know, matter of AB, and I do want to broaden out this because, you know, while family separation has technically ended and there is an order in place, the, the gist, the, the goal of this overall policy, this idea that our border should be a zero tolerance wall remains unfortunately too much in effect. And we have a situation of federal control over immigration that is um, very concentrated in the federal government. And I say, I'm an, I'm an immigration attorney. I go to immigration court. I no longer say that. I don't go to a real court. I go to an administrative agency that is run and controlled by Jeff Sessions. The judges do not report to any type of, you know, Article Three courts. And he has single-handedly used techniques and tools to redraft what our nation's refugee definition is with real serious consequences every day in our Houston administrative proceedings that some I used to call court. And, and so it is a time where we as a nation, thank you for being here, where we need to pay extra attention to the unraveling of critical protections to our immigrants that are arriving at the border, as well as our immigrants who are here, who are our neighbors, who are in our classrooms, um, and who we love. Thank you, Anne. And as immigration lawyers, every day since January 2017, we've been getting new information about how our immigration system is going to be narrowed down, that fewer people can get in line to get legal status, and, um, and most recently under this zero tolerance um, scheme. Um, at the same time, while everyone's attention is focusing on the separated families, the administration has been pushing different decisions, changing different policies, lowering who can get asylum under what situation, and what discretion these immigration judges that Anne referred to as administrative staff that decide on people's immigration matters, what discretion they have on the cases that are in the docket. Can they administratively close a case to allow someone to finish the process of completing the immigra immigration application so that they would have status? Um, a lot of things is still happening. Uh, the most recent one is, you know, who will be considered a public charge and what immigration consequences that they may have. For example, if you have children born in the United States, your children has the same right as the next US citizen to access public, public programs for food, for school, for healthcare, 
but because their parents are not citizen yet, that may be a problem if the, if the parent wants to apply for immigration status down the road. And it's not just about, okay, you apply for immigration status, let's deny it, and that will be the end of story. The administration is saying that not only are we going to deny your application, we are going to put you through deportation proceedings at the same time. So it is important to have friends in the news media, and tonight we have a journalist <laughs> from Houston Chronicle, Nomi um, Creole, who has been covering immigration issues, and um, we talked and exchanged email a lot, and tonight is the first time I met her. Um, and I want her to tell us what has she been observing as she's covering this family separation issue. Thanks, Zenobia. Um, so I began reporting on this issue last summer when we first heard that family separations were happening in West Texas and New Mexico. So this would have been almost a year before the government actually officially announced the policy. And they denied they were doing so at the time, but our reporting found otherwise. And um, we now know that it was a pilot program that they ran in El Paso, West Texas, New Mexico, before officially announcing it in May. Um, so, but what I think has been most stunning throughout my reporting, other than obviously just the horrific trauma that these parents and children are suffering. If any of you guys have not listened to ProPublica obtained an audio recording of children in a Border Patrol processing facility, and it is really, really hard to listen to. It's children like five or six years old just crying for their parents. They, they're crying so hard they can hardly even breathe. So I, I encourage you to, to try and go find that and listen to it, though it's very hard. But what is even more stunning in some ways than, than that pain um, of the parents and the children is that there really has not seemed to be a policy in a place, planning in place to reunify the families. The government, we know that shortly after Trump um, became president, they threatened to separate families at the border and then they never did so because people got so irate about it. Then they ran this pilot program in West Texas, so, and so we're obviously sort of you know, testing it out, and then officially launched it across the southern border in April. But for all these months of planning how to separate families, there seems to really have been no uh, processes in place to reunify them, which really is, um, is quite stunning for our first world country. So, you know, what happens is that the children go to office, once they're separated, the children go to the Office of Refugee Resettlement Care, and the parents usually serve a few days in prison for this misdemeanor crime, and then go to ICE uh, detention centers. But now they're within three separate federal agencies, none who appear to have any processes in place to communicate. The parents, you know, can't find the children, as Anne mentioned, when they called us, at first the number ICE was giving to parents in detention centers was actually a 1-800 number that went to a tip line to report illegal aliens. So they quickly replaced that number with the correct number, but even if they called that number, um, they would often, ORR often requires a callback number, which parents in detention centers don't have. Um, and then the children, you know, are in OR custody, and you can't just call somebody in immigration detention. So just like a stunning lack of miscommunication between all of these agencies, 
finally last month, I think, or in April, Border Patrol came up with what was a sup supposedly a tracking number to keep track of families once they go through all these agencies. But that tracking number was not adopted by ISOOR. <laughs> I mean, it really is like kind of, it's just outrageous. Um, so when the a federal judge in California ordered that the families be reunited under these very strict guidelines, they actually had to go through, in some cases, hand by hand, all the, you know, the case files for some of these children and then try to track down their parents. Um, so what we know, though, already is that in this time, parents have been deported for of the 103 kids, we know under five, 12 parents, have, at least 12 parents have been deported. And of the 2,500 kids aged between five and 17, at least 70 have been deported. And none of those parents, as far as we know, have been located. Um, I, I wanted to give you guys an example of just one case, how this played out. I reported in April a story of a father who came here from Guatemala with his 18-month-old son. The father and son were separated. Nobody told the father where the 18-month-old was going. The father served a few days in prison. He went to ICE detention. He immediately told ICE officials he wanted his son and wanted to be deported back with him. He told his consulate that. He was in detention for three months without knowing anything about his child. All anyone could tell him was, the kid is somewhere in Texas. This is an 18-month-old child. The father was deported. They kept telling him, we were going to reunite you with your kid before you, you'll be deported. He was told one day to come and join this procession of people going to the government plane. He asked for his kid. Nobody could tell him where the kid was. He was put on the plane and deported back to Guatemala by himself. Um, this is a, a, a Guatemalan um, from an indigenous part of Guatemala. He it does not speak or read. He speaks Spanish as a second language. Um, and I really think in this case, there's a chance that he would never have been reuni reunified with his child had it not been for the federal public defender in his case who took such an interest because the child was so young. I mean, an 18-month-old can't even say his father's name or where he's from. And so she, you know, just got really involved in the case. She managed to track down the, this guy's wife in Guatemala and find a number for her and get a birth certificate for the kid and get that to the consulate and get that to um, ICE. But had it not been for her involvement, I don't know if they would have been reunified because this guy, like I said, is from a very rural part of the country where there's not good phone access. He lost his phone in, when he was in detention. He is not able to navigate from Guatemala this extremely complicated process that even immigration attorneys with financial resources can. And the child, you know, obviously couldn't speak for himself. So I think that case is just really alarming to me. I mean, we actually just do not know at this point how many parents have been deported without their children especially when it comes to children who are so young and can't speak for themselves. So um, we work with unaccompanied children for quite some time. And for the difference between the, if I may say, typical unaccompanied children and the separated children is that for the unaccompanied children, they came alone. They knew that they were going to be alone and they have maybe a scrap of paper with someone's phone number that's, that when they turn themselves in at the border, that someone can call that number and try to make connection with the family. 
um, so that this child may be at some point reunited with a family member in the United States. With the separated child, as both Anne and Omi talked about earlier, there was no opportunity for the parents to prepare these children that the parents would not be with them. They do not have that scrape of paper in the pocket to show anyone what's the name of their parents, what's the phone number that they can call. And for kids that are very young, they can hardly tell you what is their name, never mind what is the name of their parents. So during the initial stage of this um, fiasco, we did not get information from the staff of the shelter where these kids are being housed. So we have to do some investigative work. Each immigrant has a number, we call the A number. So we have the child's A number. So we would guess if this child comes with a parent, the parent's number is either one digit before or one digit after. So we go to the ICE detainee uh, locator website to try to search you know, where the parent may be. If the child actually come with a parent, then at least the same last name will indicate that this likely to be the parent. So we locate where the parents are. But for some of the children who come with a cousin uh, um, who, who may not share the last name or aunt, uncle or grandparents, we could not locate the parent or the, the adult that they came with. So those are the kids that remain unmatched. Um, so once we find out where the parents are, we send letters to them to try to make connections. But then, you know, trying to have the parents contact us was challenging. They need to have an account that needs to have money in order to make that phone call. So this is an ongoing challenge to even help the parent to connect with the child once we locate the parents. Um, and one of my attorney um, told me that there was a time when the parents and the kids were detained in the same facility, but different buildings. They could see each other across this, hall, this kind of open space. But then one day, the children were packed on a van in a group of 10s and 12s. And they never had an opportunity to talk to the parents before they left. And that was one example of how this whole thing played out. And I want to ask Dahlia, you've been working with an unit for quite some time. Um, so there were protections in place for unaccompanied children and that you alluded to earlier. How is the current separated families issue? How does it play into or outside of these protections that have been in place for unaccompanied children? I would say that the system that was created for unaccompanied children, which you know took years in and of itself of uh, litigation and advocacy, was not meant to deal with separated children. Um, there are legal service providers um, like Cabrini that go into the shelters to provide these know your rights, um, legal screenings, and as Zenobia said, they were not the legal service providers were not able to complete this process because the separated children were either too young, nonverbal, um, didn't know the information about their parents or why they came. Um, and so, you know, the, the process that sort of set up uh, was just, it's just not working. Um, there's, you know, advocates, I think, are really struggling. Advocates um, that are in the legal service providers, that are work at the legal service agencies, um, attorneys are really struggling, trying to figure out what to do. Um, you know, they want to um, fight for these children's rights, 
um, you know, which include being put into removal proceedings, that's actually a right, um, because they, then they can um, uh, try to figure out whether um, they're able to stay in the U.S. Um, or, you know, deal with uh, reuniting them with their parents, which could mean that they're stripping the kids of these protections um, that were created for unaccompanied children. Um, so it's really, um, you know, there's still a huge population of unaccompanied children. Um, as Zenobia said, there's over 10,000 uh, beds available in the U.S. for unaccompanied children. Um, there's uh, thousands of children that are currently um, in removal proceedings, some of them who do not have attorneys. Um, there's protections that are being stripped away from them. Um, but instead of focusing on this population, um, which the advocates know more about, they're having to um, divert resources and try to help the separated children, um, which is a real strain for, um, for all of the providers. I think that answers your question. Yeah, uh, yes, definitely. Um, and Anne, you talked about earlier about changes in the asylum world for overall in general. Um, how is that um, affecting this population in particular, unaccompanied right. children and you know separated families, both the parents and the children? Yeah. Well, let me talk from a parent's perspective because that's who the opportunity I've had to have face-to-face -face assistance with. And I think there's two things going on here. One is a legal structure that is that is already, it, it's very focused, in not, and this is not just something of the Trump administration, but historically, when an asylum seeker reaches our border, they are in a process called expedited removal, which means there is no, no necessarily opportunity to show up with your lawyer and present your full asylum case to a judge to depict you know, the horror that you may be returning to. Rather, there's something called the expedited removal. And this is why we've seen over 70 deportation of parents, meaning that if they don't pass certain thresholds of these interviews labeled credible fear interviews or reasonable fear interviews, they go home within two, three, four weeks. And that's, that's what the system is set up to be. And, and so one is this legal structure focused on quick removal, right? And then the second is the pain that Zenobia referenced and, and Dahlia did of these kids and that the parents know their children and they know that they're going to sleep with a deep sense of guilt, of a feeling that they have, that their child believes that they have abandoned them, that there was no human moment that we gave them to tell that kid, that reassuring kid, I love you, we're gonna find each other, this is all gonna be okay. Be strong. No, no moment for that. We can't figure out how to do that in this nation, right? And so these parents are totally susceptible to situations which we're trying to document with the ACLU, where they, one parent was telling me, 33 days without speaking to their child in a detention center knowing that child is suffering. They speak to the child for the first time in a 10 minute conversation and this father explains that I couldn't talk, I had everything I wanted to say but for three or four minutes I just tried to breathe. 
because I was afraid I was just going to start crying. And I wanted my child to know to be strong, that we can do this. And so at minute three, I started saying, and it's okay, and I love you, and explained how the child was still like sleeping with one of his clothing so he could remember him. And then right after this call, the deportation, uh, the asylum officer is on the phone and says, you know, hey, would you like to proceed with your case and see a judge? Or would you like to just go home with your child? We can have you meet at the airport. What do you think the father says? I want the pain to be over, let me, let me go back. So I think you've got a legal structure that is already incredibly complicated and favors removal with an agency that is shrinking the law on who gets to go to court. Because we made this, uh, that we talked about matter of AB, we hear Jeff Sessions on the phone call talking about asylum in a framework of legal loopholes. These are not loopholes. This is an international definition of asylum. But unilaterally, the agency is trying to redraft who gets in and who gets out. And from Tahrir Justice Center, an organization that focuses on gender-based violence, on domestic violence, on sexual exploitation, women and children are at the center of this animosity, at this effort to ex expel and reject individuals who've experienced harm that nobody should experience. And so we've got both of these going on, this kind of you know, manufactured pain, which just makes people wanna be with their child regardless of the situation, and a legal framework, which we're putting every impediment in without uh, you know, a lot of structure of support. And we have attorneys. These attorneys that work, Zenobia has in Catholic Charities, I wanna say 40 or so, amazing dedicated, bilingual attorneys. What, what are they doing to sharpen their skills? They're practicing grounding exercises so that they can talk to children to keep them from crying, so they can try to calm them enough to get the name of a parent, so they can find a child's parent. This is absurd. And as Lomi were saying, you know, this intentional lack of sharing information across the agencies or with institutional you know, stakeholders such as Catholic Charities and the American Bar Association is just unspeakable. But it's exactly what's going on. And so it is, it is impeding any sense of, of due process or that we can say we're a nation of laws. And when I hear Jeff Sessions and others say, we don't like to do this, but the law is the law and we must follow it. It is, you know, finding to, you know, that is, that is really an absurd, you know, obstruction of, of the law. In fact, you are, um, I, that might be a sign that I'm rambling on. Zenobi, I think I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, um, not only is the federal government kind of narrowing who can apply for asylum, so one thing that has always been at play when we have legal services for the disadvantaged population, whether they're low income, limited English proficient, or immigrants, the first thing that would make sure that these people would not exercise their rights is to take away their lawyers. So as legal services provider serving unaccompanied children, we were told pretty recently that that's it. Whatever cases you have, that's all you can take. You cannot take any more new cases. So there are two systems kind of 
colluding with each other. At, at the same time, the government is narrowing you know, who can get immigration protection. The government is also narrowing the funding, capacity, resources uh, for immigrants and children, in our case, to access lawyers. Um, I don't know how many of you have gone to court and actually love that process <laughs> and think that you have mastered it. Um, I've been a lawyer for 27 years. If I became a subject of a lawsuit, I want a lawyer. And I think these children, when they are hauled into this immigration court that Anne said is really just an administrative tribunal, they need lawyers. Um, whatever immigration relief that they are able to seek, right? Um, for, you know, one of the very important protections for unaccompanied children as they're designated as unaccompanied children when they seek asylum is that they get to first go to the agency with asylum officers that are supposed to be trained to use child-friendly technique to talk to these children so that they can feel comfortable telling the story. Over the last six months, maybe longer, I sat in immigration court and I've seen judges de-designating these young people from being classified as an accompanied minor. If they are being reunified with a family member, they are no longer an accompanied minor, and therefore they don't get that procedural protection. If they're over 18, uh, even though when they came in as, when they were 16, once you turn 18, you are no longer an accompanied minor and you lose the protection. So there are many different ways that we haven't even heard of that, you know, immigrant children, migrant children, uh, being challenged and being barred from exercising the right in the immigration system. Turning back to the you know, family separation crisis, and Nomi, I know that you've been you know, following on the family reunification process, and the government actually have a very complicated flowchart that they submitted to the court over the weekend as to if this is yes, you go to this side, if it's no, you go to that side. What, how exactly has that been implemented on the ground, if you can tell us? Um, yeah, so I was going to talk about that a little and then just go to the process again. I mean, because I think it's the same issue at play is that both the reunifications and the separations are um, playing out very secretively. So there's not a lot of information and there's just not a lot of access. Um, what we know about the reunifications so far is that um, you know, service providers or attorneys were not informed that their clients would be reunited and they would happen at night, at odd hours. You know, it, it just has been so far very, very secretive, which is you know, much like the, um, the policy has played out. Uh, so, you know, like I mentioned already, I started reporting on this last summer, and the reason why I came across it was because the Attorney General last April announced he was going to ramp up criminal prosecutions for illegal entry which is a misdemeanor and already makes up more than 60% of the federal docket. So what I thought at the time was, well, that's already a lot. I don't know how we're going to increase it. I'll just make some calls on this. I wasn't expecting <laughs> what I was going to get when federal public defenders said, yeah, you know what? It's really weird. We have all these parents asking us to help us find their children. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Because, you know, in the past, Parents were not prosecuted for this misdemeanor if they came with their children. And one of the main reasons for that is that there just is not the capacity for the federal criminal justice system to hold all of the immigrants for illegal entry. 
Another um, reason, too, is that at previous administrations, Bush and Obama decided they didn't want to separate parents and children. But so the process is just so secretive, and I think that's why it's taken, it's been really hard, it's really been a reliant on reporters and immigration attorneys and criminal justice attorneys who don't understand immigration law to, to decipher how this um, all works, because the separations occur in a board patrol processing center, the children go to OR custody, which no one has access to, the parents go to federal prison, which you can't access, then they go to ICE, and from there they're quickly deported, and it's really, really difficult at any point in time for anyone to get access to the parents or the children. Um, and just one quick thing, uh, just wanted to mention that the government also has not been forthcoming and in some ways has actually been blatantly um, giving out false information. For example, they said multiple times on national you know, press calls with reporters that they were not separating um, breastfeeding children. When I was in a Port Isabel detention center last, earlier this month or last month, there was a woman there who was going in front of the judge um, asking him to reconsider her asylum claim. She had been raped by two police officers in Guatemala, and her kids were actually the result of those rapes, which is why she was coming here to ask for asylum, because they were threatening to kill her because the kids were proof of, of their crime. She was breastfeeding the, the little kid still. He was like six months old, and they took her four children away. She had not been... As of that hearing, she had not spoken to any of her children in a month. She failed her credible fear hearing because she was so concerned about her children. It's also done via telephone, so it's very difficult um, for, the, for anyone to articulate their claim. But in her case, the judge did, um, did reverse that denial. But I just wanted to sort of underscore that we're not getting always forthcoming information from the government. And, and one of the recurring um, kind of theme that we've been hearing from the government about implementing this zero tolerance policy and, and kind of defending family separation is that, well, we want, to, we want to use this as a deterrent so that you know not to bring your little kids to come to the United States um, so that you don't take that risk. Otherwise, we are going to take your kids away. As Kate mentioned earlier, refugees and asylees uh, follow an international accepted standard of who is eligible to be refugee, who is eligible to be asylee. Refugee is you, you have that status outside of the target country. Let's say the United States is where you want to go. You get designated refugee status by the UNHCR as refugee to come into the United States. But unless you are at a place where there is refugee camp, there's UNHCR to process you, you don't get to be classified as refugees. So the only way to get humanitarian protection is to come into this country. And we have people who show themselves, present themselves at the port of entry and being detained. How else can anyone apply for asylum if they don't come into the country? And we and we don't stop prosecuting people for illegal entry. I mean, this is, this is a circular, ridiculous kind of proposition that I think you know, we need to think about when we try to understand what is going on at the border and with other asylum seekers who are already in the country. Um, immigration law has never been easy to practice. It's just got worse in the last 20 years. 
um, and we hope that it will, the pendulum will swing to being reasonable, that we don't look at enforcement as the only immigration system. We actually look at immigration system as a mechanism to bring in people, um, for, to bring talents to our country, to provide refuge to people who seek refuge. Um, I think we have, you have heard enough of us talking and we want to turn to the floor because it's a conversation, it's a discussion. Um, we want to um, welcome you to join this conversation and sh share some of your thoughts and maybe questions that you may have. Um, this one over here. There's some we mic have a coming mic. to you. Mike right here. You would think that if this government wants to deter these people from coming here, they would warn them way ahead of time of what they're walking into. Now apparently this is not happening. So you gotta wonder if the real objective is to boost the prison industry. And I'm just wondering if we have investigative reporters who are looking into that possibility and shining some light on it and it just seems to me that if there were a lot of lawsuits against these companies with maximum punitive damages, that it would no longer be profitable and it might disappear overnight. I don't know if anyone have a response. So, about, um, you, you're saying it seems like they're not sending the deterrence messages, so is this a, a scheme to kind of boost profits for detention companies? Is, is that kind of what? Okay. Well, I mean, I would say that they, you know, the, the government under Obama with the 2014 surge and, and now has invested, and I think probably anyone else here can also speak about that, quite a lot of resources for, you know, ads in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. So, and campaigns to kind of send this message, do not bring your, your, your children here. So, I mean, they have done that, and part of this is, this scare tactic is also to kind of reinforce that message that, you know, so that people don't come. I mean, as for the, the detention centers and, and the profits, I mean, there's an enormous amount of profit um, and money-making to be made, not just in detention centers, but even with, like, I will just give one example that I was personally outraged about. There's a, a company that contracts with the detention centers just to do the putting money on an inmate's account and then calling them. It's an $8 service charge every time you want to put money on someone's account, which is outrageous. I mean, there are very few ATMs, right, that charge an $8 service charge. So. I mean, there are so many different ways to make money of this process that certainly there's a lot of incentive. And we know that groups like GEO and CoreCivic do contribute a lot to, to, to people that support family detention and immigration detention in general. And even upon their release, they are fitted with ankle bracelet that you have to pay for, and you have to pay a lot more money in order for it to be removed from your ankle. So there are a lot of entities making money in detaining people and then so that you have to go through this process to release them and after they are being released, still making money on them. There's a question over there. Hi, um, my name is Ruby Powers, I'm an immigration attorney. It's been an honor to work with all of you and thank you for all your, your work. 
Um, the recent thing that's happening right now is that they're releasing parents, I think often with less than 12 hours notice, and they're giving them um, hearing dates in maybe less than a month for states that they're not planning on living in. So um, that's the most recent thing that I think is happening in the last couple of days with reunifications that I've been following. Um, but um, if you're looking for ways to plug in, there's lots of ways um, on there's different forums from Lawyer Moms for America, Lawyers for Good Government, um, immigrant families together, um, and on a lot of the other nonprofits that are out there. Some of us are just picking up and bonding with other volunteers, picking up parents, reunifying people, speaking to the media, um, going down to the detention facilities. So um, I'm, I'm really proud of everybody who's been stepping up and trying to address this tragedy. Thank you. There's, there's one in the back. Who, who am I going to? I think it's behind you. Uh, thank you so much for this important, albeit very painful, dialogue. But I'm curious about the people who are actually working for ICE and who are working at the detention centers and who are literally taking the babies away from the parents knowing they will not see them again. Is there any kind of movement from them in appreciating the cruelty of what they're doing? Is there any whistleblowing protection where they might not lose their job if they speak up? We rarely hear about their um, situation for this so-called job of cruelty. Yes. So, you know, I really appreciate that question. I think what people are willing to do in a bureaucracy, specifically right now in the bureaucracies of Customs and Border Protection and Immigration Customs Enforcement, should all give us pause. I do not think these individuals would do things that they are doing in an individual capacity. And I think history tells us all that bureaucracies and the power and the belief systems of absor absorbing an ethos that is so non-humanitarian is something we need to unravel and have some really deep conversations about as a nation. To pause here, I was with a young little boy Friday after we picked up him up from a, a local, one of these eight shelters. And he was asking his mom in the backseat of my car, mom, one thing I didn't understand is why they gave me so nine shots. They gave him nine vaccinations. The kid was fully vaccinated. And then the second thing he asked is, why did the van driver, he wore a uniform, he worked for the American government, and all the kids were crying in the van. And they were saying, where are we going? And he just reassured us that we're going to see your mom, we're bringing you to her dad, and got them singing a hymn to know, quite frankly, that this government official was bringing these kids to unaccompanied shelter very far from an location of a shelter. So, you know, I have to imagine that the individuals that we are recruiting and paying must go to bed at night and have a very difficult time with nightly prayers, with saying goodbye to their children. 
these policy, it's not fair to making our government agency carry out these cruel measures and tactics. It, it is something we should ask no government official to do, and yet we do, right? And so we're, how can we start to unravel this? I mean, we hear words of you know, galvanizing hate and distrust, but really that's not who we are as a people or a nation. And so how can we have some real hard conversations with our, our congressmen and with our society in general? Is, is what, what kind of ethos and set of values and morals are we gonna call upon when we look back at this, this very ugly chapter and have a real hard conversation with what our, our government agents are doing of just the outright misinformation on the individual scale to the most vulnerable children and parents, as well as to the public. I just wanted to jump in too on that. I mean, I think that, you know, privately, we've, uh, some Border Patrol officials have definitely, there is a discomfort there. I, I think that we should not forget that in many of these communities, the federal government See, I, uh, ICE and Border Patrol is the main employer in that region. So these are the only jobs that many of the people there have. Um, and I think that, you know, I've, I've heard from some of them that many of them have been asked to be reassigned from details, whether it's the, at the processing facilities or on the bridge preventing asylum seekers from, from coming across. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we shouldn't forget that these are people too. And, that they have their jobs to do, and I'm sure that they have concern. And just, you know, on that note, um, ICE has a division that is called Homeland Security Investigations, and they investigate criminal cases of human trafficking, smuggling, et cetera. They have actually written to their supervisors in a letter that was made public um, a few weeks ago and asked to be reassigned from ICE um, and placed under a, a different agency because this reputation that ICE is destroying and ripping up families is so damaging their criminal investigations. So, you know, I definitely think that there is concern among individuals and even on a, on a larger level. And, and, you know, if I could pick up on this, when I, when I think of uh, folks working for Homeland Security Investigation for ICE, these are critically important stakeholders in our community that keep us safe. These are individuals, when we have human trafficking rings in Houston, we call in confidence and they do very important investigations. They show up at our meetings, we talk strategy, we share information we know and we gain community's trust. And it is disconcerting at this moment of time when we call individuals that we have built strong relationships to say, I'm sorry, I'd like to respond, but right now my orders are on a different mission, right? On, uh, this is not being prioritized, and this fact, I am being detailed on X. A and so, you know, I am not making a call that, you know, CBP, these are, these are you know, officers of our country. They play important role, roles. What I'm calling upon is, is the mandates and the rubric and the values that at this moment <coughs> of time, they are being asked to dance to. Over here, and then there, and then there. <laughs> There's been no mention about the coyotes, but you know they're making money off of bringing these people, and the people may not know what's going on at the border. 
and thinking, oh yeah, we can get you there. So what? that's another dilemma. And I keep hearing, you know, people want to get rid of ICE, but I feel like we need ICE. They just need to be restructured and reevaluated for the purpose that it was designed for rather than just getting rid of it. And ICE. I think it should be nice national immigration <laughs> customs enforcement. Yeah, I agree. That gentleman in the blue shirt. Um, I have a threefold question. <clears throat> um, <coughs> thank you very much for your information. One of the things that I think is really important um, for us, uh, I'm a pastor in this area. I have, we're involved with some refugee ministry, but I think that. Um, it is not easy to find out who to get in touch with. Even having congregants ask me when we started praying for this over a month ago, who do we get in touch with? It has been, Google has not served well. So I think it would be great for um, coming out of this if there was something on the website or somewhere that people like myself and people I'm trying to move towards even hearing this individual in the back say, well, there's all these organizations. I'm like going, it's great that they're there, but if we don't know you're there, it's very difficult to figure out how to be involved. So that's one. Um, secondly, having lived in Tucson, Arizona, and now living in Texas, I realize border issues are very different in Arizona than they are here. Moving to Texas was a real eye-opener because when I was in Tucson, it was a very different understanding of how people had lived in the Snorin region and moved across that arbitrary border. Um, in Texas, because of independence being fought here, it was a very different mentality. Um, even uh, speaking with many of my uh, Hispanic friends, they had a very different processing of that. So I think that in some ways, um, some of these issues that we're trying to discuss, even the laws you're discussing, um, it would be super helpful. I realize I'm not a lawyer, and I realize that you know there's a lot of things you guys know and understand how the law is shifting, but you realize in the public eye, um, anytime I'm having conversations with individuals, and I tend to stay off social media because it doesn't help those conversations, but when I'm trying to talk to individuals that really are thinking, they're asking very substantive questions about how do you know the law is different? Because under Obama, it was this. Under Bush, it was this. So hearing you say, well, the law shifted here or policy changes like this, that information is very difficult to get a hold of and say, okay, what are the nuances? Because one issue is enforcement. Another issue is what the law actually states. So I've heard a number of things. The third thing, which I've really appreciated you saying, and I think it would be great to have some access to as well, is exactly how our nation shift in policy under, under um, you know, going all the way back to Reagan, first Bush, Clinton, into second Bush, and into Obama, and now under um, Trump. Just the way that we have funded other nations and helped them, we understand that I just got back from Africa and Rwanda where we've been doing a lot of discussions with refugee things over there, even with the Congo. And so one of the things we know that's happening is, is that the way you understand refugee status and the way you understand the governments actually helping stabilize nations, people don't want to leave their country of origin. That's a misnomer. They want to be in their home country where they feel comfortable. So trying to understand how we're actually stabilizing or where we've removed uh, things that were actually helping to stabilize those governments, again, incredibly helpful information and I appreciate you mentioned it. It'd be great if we could have access to that. Maybe I'm just asking you personal things that are important to me, but I think other people probably are interested as well. Um, those are really very important questions and I, I'm not sure we have answers to all of them right now. Um, but one thing that I do want to say is that 
Um, immigration law has gone through different amendments. Sometimes make it worse, sometimes make it better. For example, the TVPRA, the Trafficking Victim Protection Act, Reauthorization Act in 2008, created a definition for unaccompanied children, right? So, and created protection for this group of um, immigrants. But then over the years, um, I would say, the, the modern day immigration law came into being in 1965 that equalized who can immigrate to the United States from all parts of the world. Um, but since then, we've been kind of amending it, messing with it, making it difficult, making it internally not even consistent. But the law is one thing. The law requires Congress to act. Congress has not acted for quite some time on, on a lot of things, but on <laughs> one group of immigrants that you might have heard of, dreamers. The first Dream Act was introduced in 2001. At the time, those dreamers, maybe teenagers, now they have their own families already. For how many years? 17 years. 20 introduction of different version of Dream Act never passed Congress. So Congress has not acted to fix the immigration law. So that left it to the agency that's supposed to Im implement the immigration law to tinker with it. And under, depends on which administration. Under the current administration, we have a pretty aggressive uh, attorney general. Um, every week, I would say, every week is a good uh, frequency, but sometimes it's like every other day. There'll be changes in policy memo. So uh, theoretically, mm -hmm. Congress passed a law and the agency that in charge of implementing the law has to pass regulation that is subject to public comment. And USCIS has not, has not draft any regulation, has not flowed any draft regulation for, to go through this public comment process for a long time. And for example, for TVPR, we still have no regulations after 10 years to implement this very important law. So how has agency been implementing the law? They have pulled out this policy memo that, they can, that doesn't require any public notice, doesn't require any public comment, and they change it every other day. That is how the immigration system is being implemented nowadays. So when we talk about the laws being changed, the law itself has not changed. It's more like the agency itself is on their own changing how they want to implement that. Um, and I hear your call for us to do a much better job of providing quality, clear information. I do want to direct you to HoustonImmigration.org. That's one word, HoustonImmigration.org. And it is the we website of the Houston Immigration Legal Services Collaborative. And we try to bring together public-facing information through that website to inform the public. And last thing, I want to say that the media does a great job of covering changes in policy. Um, so that's where I get a lot of my updates. I read articles from all of these uh, great newspapers. Um, I think they've done a great job of trying to um, simplify some of the really complex changes that are going on with immigration laws. Thanks, Dahlia. I also just wanted to plug in here um, that, you know, one thing that has been also very alarming in the past 18 months is that there seems to be just such a uh, three several different bubbles of how people get information and you know I, I think it really is on the onus of people individuals themselves to to you know read a media story and 
check out you know, who's, who's publishing that. Is it a legitimate media company? Can you find another story that says something similar? You know, because what I've been uh, constantly just getting on, on Twitter and, and emails is you know, people who are reading Infowars, for example. And so they will just keep telling me, Obama did the same thing, and this is no different than when American parents go to jail. And I mean, the reality is American parents, once they finish their sentence, are reunited with their children, and that's not happening here. So there are several key differences, but I really just do think it's on the onus of people themselves to go and research not only what they're reading, just you know, that, but then also whether that news source is credible. Fair enough. Well, um, so we have time for one more question. <laughs> <laughs> he has his hand up first, but <laughs> thanks. Uh, I'll make good use of it. It's a two-part question. Um, first, we talked a lot about the shrinking legal framework um, and the tactics that are being used against um, immigrants or people who are seeking asylum. So question is, um, are there any active uh, legal challenges to this shrinking legal framework? Um, and that's the first part. Uh, then the second question is, what advice, um, so the immigration system of this nation just needs a complete reform. I think we know that. Uh, Dreamers, TPS, the 11 million undocumented people, we know that. Um, but what advice or what specific things outside of those three that I mentioned um, is advice for current lawmakers or potential future lawmakers for steps to codify an immigration law, how to deal with um, uh, people who um, are seeking asylum or families so that these separations don't happen, so it's not up to the interpretation of policy. Um, so any specific advice on that? That's, that seems to be a good segue to our call for action um, piece here uh, that would answer some of your question. I'll start with Anne. Oh, if you don't mind. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, there, there are two big federal lawsuits right now that we need to be paying attention to. I think the one that's getting the most media for good reason is the ACLU's case in San Diego, kind of known as Miss L versus ICE. And that is all these important mandates where we're saying, no, no, government, no more deporting parents without your children. There's a stay on this. No, we need to bring them together and you need to show us how you're doing that. But there's also a second, in my opinion, as really important, active, big federal case where Jeff Sessions and DHS are filing briefs very quickly, and that's called this Flores case. And I think Dahlia mentioned this case, and because when that executive order kind of ending officially the, the, the expansion of family separation, that order was all about because we're going to use as a deterrent family detention. And yet what, and, and it is true, one of the things President Obama did when he was trying to reduce the numbers at the border and respond aggressively, kind of in an anti-asylum way, was turn to the long-term detention of Central American families. And he did this by erecting, erecting two large family detention centers in Texas, one in Carn City and one in Dilly. And if you, we go back, you know, what, what happened in that Flores lawsuit was that we documented what detention looks like 
for children when it is not, you know, 20 days, 30 days, 40, but is three months, four months, five months. And what we saw is we saw a child jumping off the roof. We saw children ages five to 10 trying to revert to breastfeeding in public spaces. We saw individuals too just completely stop talking. We saw individuals who have to, to win asylum, you have to share some of, especially in gender-based cases, some of the most detailed, horrific harms that have happened to you and your children of sexual and physical nature and try to do that from a detention setting, especially when your child's testimony is necessary, is nothing that comports with our nation's due process. And the federal court said that and they expanded the prohibition of having children subject to long-term detention to children with their parents subject to long-term detention. So one way to view family separation is a response to the Flores lawsuit that said, uh, government, you can't just detain families indefinitely. But that's kind of what our, our administration is trying to go back to. And so we need to pay incredible attention in, in when we look at the asylum uh, you know, context of fighting asylum from a detention center with the lack of resources and constraints is, is not a palpable way forward. So that would be one thing that it would really ask us as a nation to say, because as horrific as kind of the cries of those children that you mentioned on ProPublica, of the kids being physically taken away and the kids crying, mom, mom, it's hard to get into the detention centers to tape the children and their silence and their mootness. But trust me, I, I was there for a month and it is really a depressing salad. It's a, it's a horrible place that I don't want our nation to return to after this policy wraps up. Dahlia. Uh, so my uh, call for action is, um, you know, of course we don't want uh, uh, family detention, and I think there's just a, so many issues that we can talk about um, within immigration. Um, you know, for unaccompanied children, I think if, you know, I think the current administration would agree um, if there was no more ORR shelters, they would be um, so happy because that means that all the children would just get turned around at the border. Um, and that's not what we want. You know, a lot of the, um, the protections that children get um, are at the shelters, um, and, and like I said, it's after many years of litigation and advocacy that there are these protections. So um, there's, you know, like somebody mentioned, there's nuances to, to all of these things, but it's important to keep in mind that, um, you know, you have to just uh, sort of keep up to date and, and sort of understand the systems um, so that you're able to advocate, have informed advocacy on these issues. And Lomi? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, support journalism. <laughs> so, you know, whether that's signing up for HoustonChronicle.com is really confusing. We have two websites, but HoustonChronicle.com is the one you want to look at. It's a few dollars a week for a digital subscription. But, you know, if you don't want to do that, that's fine. There's Texas Tribune, there's NPR, there's New York Times, Washington Post. I mean, there's a pick for you, but, you know, su support that. But I would also say um, call your congressman often. Tell them how you feel. 
And we're in July, so it's three months before the midterm elections. Make sure that you turn out and vote however you feel about that. John Culberson specifically, if you go to his website now, he is saying family separation is wrong. Well, thank you, Representative, right? But then he's making a call to pass a congressional piece of legislation to permit long-term family detention, right? And so that's one uh, mode of action if you're in his district or look whose district you are in and make a call that, you know, we really, the doors for asylum at this time should be opening and widening, and we should not be spending $600 a day to keep a separated child in a detention center. We should be using that $600 a day to ensure that, that, that we're using non-detention as approach and reasonable resources for these families to rebuild their lives through that process of adjudication and looking as our, common, our, our young man asked over here at how could we better stabilize the countries of Central America that are really war-torn mm -hmm. and, and having an, a, a lack of government stability at this time. And I just want to... I know yeah. the questions already, you know, but I, I would like to say, so I'm from Honduras, and that what you say right now is that precisely what I think is the most important thing to do. Um, the U.S. taxpayer dollars are using, are being used by the U.S. government to support those corrupted families. In my country, Honduras is the worst of the worst. Not only corrupted, but criminal. They are killing people every single day. These families are not coming to the United States just because they gangster. They are coming because the government is killing people. They send in the US, the, the army, the police officers to kill any person who is opposed to the government. They don't care if they are children. They are being killed every day. You can see it in the internet. You can see it <coughs> The information is there. And while the U.S. government and the U.S. citizens don't do something regarding the foreign policy that support those governments, nothing is going to change. That's, for me, that's the most important thing to do. Stop the U.S. Uh, support to Honduras right now. Because the Honduras uh, government, first of all, is an illegal government uh, elected by illegal tactics. Uh, and secondly, it's the most corrupted. And the U.S. Embassy in Honduras knows. They know what kind of government is that. And while um, these families were suffering at the border, being separated by the children, the very same day, my fans meet with the Honduran uh, president, saying him, oh, congratulations, because you won the election. Congratulations, the U.S. government will support you uh, forever and, and give money to the, US, to the Honduran army. Give more money while the families here were being detained. It wasn't the same day. So that's ridiculous and that is cruelty and that is corruption to from the US government. Mm -hmm. So while
And you can see nobody talks because they afraid, even on the bus driver. We are afraid of the bus driver. Someone told me, don't say anything because the bus driver is working with the drug cartels. And that is the situation every single day in Honduras. And the, and the government of Honduras, it is uh, involved in the drug trafficking. It is involved with the drug cartels. And the U.S. government knows it. Mm -hmm. They know it. Yeah. So why so much corruption here and so much corruption there, and there is nothing to be done? Thank, thank you for sharing your perspective. <laughs> and, and that is actually a very important point. Um, I'm an immigrant to this country. Um, I got my education here, and uh, I became a lawyer here, and became an immigration lawyer specifically. But what is also very important is that we cannot live in an isolated world. We need to know what is going on in the world to educate ourselves, and that is our responsibility uh, as a citizen um, of the world to understand what is going on, why, you know, what, what we can do and what is the role of our government. And the right to vote is a sacred right. A lot of people want to have that right but cannot have that right, so you have it. Please exercise it um, intelligently um, to look at the better interests for everyone. Uh, immigration law, if you look at the, the words of the law, may be complicated. But the principle doesn't have to be complicated. It's about fairness. It's about equality. It's about recognizing human rights and protecting human dignity. So now I turn to um, Ernesto to um, do a closing remark. Well, I want to thank everybody um, for being here tonight. And of course, thank our panelists. And uh, I'd like to have you thank them again tonight. So I'd also like to invite you to uh, meet them again on the plaza. Um, and I'd like for you to go ahead and go to the plaza. They'll come out with you afterward. Don't come up and, and engage them here. We want to really engage them in the plaza, if you don't mind. Um, so as we go away, um, I'd like to one, add one other thing to, to mention is that someone, one of the pastors here was asking uh, what kinds of um, call to action there might be. And so there is a, a form that the Houston Immigration Legal Services Collaborative have put together, and it'll be available in the plaza as well. So there'll be some connection elements there as well. So with that, I'd like to um, thank you again, and uh, we'll see you on the plaza. <laughs>